0: Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Before we get to minute 41, Let's talk about the Halloween 40 event this past weekend. This segment right now was of course recorded just this week, while the short portion about Minute 41's content was recorded weeks ago. Anyway, the event. Insert a nice rambly description, what happened, who I met, what I bought, everything. Back home from day two of H40. little insert here to talk about that. Let me just say. The episode you're about to hear of Michael Myers Minute talks about obsession and how obsessed I can get with one little thing from the movie. One nice thing. Maybe a little humbling or freeing, depending on how you look at it. There are people far more obsessed with this movie than I am. Of course, that's not my approach. I'm not approaching it as I'm going to obsess about Halloween and the franchise and everything else. I'm obsessing in parts. Little bit at a time, little bit at a time, little bit at a time. I might eventually learn all the things some of these people have already obsessed about for years. I was a viewer, and now I'm ai mm, I don't even know what I am. So the day started weird. Elevator ride with Jake Johnson from New Girl with twin girls and twin cakes, because apparently it was a birthday. I'm like, well, that's how the day begins. Random actor, because L.A. something I like about L.A., actually, that it can happen so casually and then sometimes can be so weird and exciting. Lots of notes. Let me see, what do I have? First thing, first thing, first thing. Got a fist bump from Lou Temple while in line. So first thing in the morning it was weird. I was having some anxiety today. wasn't feeling like I could approach the strangers and talk to them. So it was a little awkward. And then I went to the first panel, the Halloween 3 panel. And after that, I felt better. Like, just getting to sit down and take some notes and obsess and see anything useful from that. I've already said Halloween 3 is not my favorite. (laughs) But the panel was really good. it started weird because Tom Atkins came in first and there was no moderator. And so they just kind of did their own thing, fixed it all up, did what they wanted. And it was kind of entertaining that way. Most of the notes of these panels will be stuff that I'll save for when I talk about it, in theory, in the future, in this podcast. So I'm looking for the really fun ones. Oh, Tommy Lee Wallace's line, with all due respect to the original Halloween, this movie is about Halloween. And I wrote in my notes in brackets, respectfully disagree. The original Halloween is very much about Halloween, with all of the reference to costumes, the reference to mischief, the reference to fate, and the reference to putting on masks and disguises and being other people, and then children playing as being adults, adults playing as being idiots. I guess that's not really coming from Halloween, but uh, hey. This is in reference to Halloween 3, but I thought it was amusing. Dean Cundy asks, have we talked about Sam Hain? And uh, Tommy Wallace points out that Dan Hurley told them how it was actually pronounced. Except Nigel, the screenwriter, didn't know. So they'd already started pronouncing it the other way. And so it was too late. <laughs> Two movies too late in my opinion. Soon after Halloween 3, there was Halloween 4 panel. Sasha Jensen says, uh, part 4 in our franchise was weird. Uh, and I was pretty sure he was wrong about that. Uh, in 1988, I looked it up double, to double-check. Elm Street was on its 4th, and Friday the 13th was on its 7th. But apparently he wasn't that familiar with horror films anyway, so whatever. Right after the Halloween 4 panel, I went around and finally I got some food, I had a drink, and then I talked to Charlie Ciphers and told him about seeing him film when I was 5. And I'd grown up with this movie. That was cool. to shake his hand. Didn't get a picture, because, you know, they're doing paid pictures and autographs, so you either get awkward pictures from far away or no pictures. Because I don't have the spending cash that some of those people did. There were people with posters with signatures all over that got all of the people. There were like 30-some guests. Correction. I looked it up on the website later. There were somewhere around 70 guests and signatures running from 20 to $40, not to mention the photo ops. and There were people doing all of that. I met Dean Cundy. Sandy Johnson, Will Sandin, John Michael Graham, that one was fun because as I walked up he's explaining to someone about the harness that hung him on the door and this harness was shorts. Later in the 1978 panel he described it as them saying they could only, he could only be in it for two minutes and then it would start to crush his pelvis. I don't know how accurate that is, maybe they were just fucking with him.
1: And then I asked him,
0: I was talking about like being in not just an iconic movie, but being in that iconic scene, that shot that you say, like when people look up Halloween on Google, you do an image search, you're gonna get that image of him stuck to that wall. And he asks, he, he makes a comment about the length of the knife. Later in the panel he asks again too, Have they ever thought about the length of the knife and what did, what did, uh, is it Tommy Lee Wallace that said, uh, you didn't care in the moment. Hitchcock calls that a refrigerator question. You know, you think about it later. You didn't, You don't care in the moment. And John says, did you consider it? And he goes, fuck no. (laughs) He didn't care. But back to Michael Graham. I actually suggested that Michael hit his rib cage with a knife. And it was actually pushed back into his spine. The spine is what went into the wall. And he's like, yeah, I like that. It makes sense. Thank you for explaining it. I met Rian Reese. She's in the new movie. Well, she was very nice, and while I'm waiting to talk to her, Matt, interviewer from Halloween uh, Daily News, is standing there, and we're talking, and Dick Warlock walks by and grabs his ass. <laughs> what kind of place are we in? For example, you know, weird place. Dick Warlock grabs a guy's ass. Okay, fine. I'm walking to go to the restroom, and I walk past George Wilbur, Lance Guest, and a guy dressed Michael Myers. That's not weird, but this way conventions can be fun. I haven't been to a convention in a while. I've never been to a horror convention. I went to some X-Files conventions, a Star Trek convention, and a general science fiction convention back in the 90s. I talked to J.C. Brand. She's the one who takes over as Jamie in Halloween 6. About casting, how she and Daniel are friends, and about the series, about fate. I told her about Minute 17, the whole conversation about fate, because she told me, without this movie, she wouldn't have her daughter. And I'm like, how does that work? And so she explained, Malika Kod made a video for her band because of this movie. Because of that video, she got a record contract. Because of the record contract, she met her husband. Because of the husband, she had her daughter. And she's like, without this movie, she wouldn't have her lovely daughter. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, that's a good story. It fits. She asked about my podcast because I was wearing the shirt. She asked about it before I mentioned it. Which is funny. And two things. She's like, are you going to be able to keep doing that through all of the movies? Cause they're not all that well thought out. Like going minute by minute. I'm like, yeah, I, I think so. And then she said, I should look her up in a few years down the road when I get to Halloween six. Like, Definitely. I met Leo Rossi, uh, bud in Halloween two. He was really nice. I met Adam Gunn, young Michael Myers in Halloween two. It's his first convention. They tried to get him for the 20, but he, by the time they got in contact with him, he wasn't available that weekend. So it's his first one. He was very excited and very nice. And then was the... Is that all I talked to? Seems like I talked to more. I talked to Eric Preston again at one point. I asked him if I'd paid for uh autograph and photo what he posed with the clown mask on because he had him on the table. There for people who want to wear the clown mask when they do pictures with him. They wear the clown mask, not him. He said no. (laughs) He probably would have done it if I paid for it, but he's funny. I used his name later when I... Well, I'll get to that. I met Brian Andrews. The zombie panel. Oh my god, it was for both movies, both zombie movies. So it makes sense. But it was 17 people on stage, including the moderator, and still they managed to all kind of say something. <laughs> Lots of pages of notes on that. I want you to share them now. I'll share them in like 15 years when I get to that movie. It won't be 15 years. It'll be less than that, of course. Dun, dun, dun. I'll eventually tell the story about how uh, Chase Fannick was bit by the White Horse, was dangling from, dangling by the hand. It was pretty good. And so then finally at the end of the day, the 1978 panel, which was Urban Yablans, Dean Cundey, Tom Lee Wallace, Mickey Yablans, Nick Castle Wilson, and PJ Souls, John Michael Graham, and Brian Andrews, who hadn't been at the convention at all until then, he walks in. Oh, and David Kyle. Sorry, I almost forgot him. I almost forgot him as I'm looking at my parenthetical note that the moderator forgot to introduce it. That's not very nice. Some of these notes I'll get to when I get to that part of the movie, cause I'm gonna add this to my notes for upcoming minutes. Or when we told the story about the origins of the babysitter murders and Halloween and all that. Tommy Wallace and Nick Castle talked about knowing John Carpenter. Tommy Wallace knew him from grade school. Nick Castle knew from USC. Uh, David Cowell was someone that Tommy Wallace knew. Uh, oh, David Cowell had a great "That It was the smallest part I ever had and the only part I am ever remembered for. Will Sandin auditioned for Tommy and then they brought him back and they had him make a scary face and then in the movie he ends up not making a scary face, but he got the part. Mm-hmm. 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 I just happened in the last Starfighter Last Starfighter theme I think it was Uh PJ Souls is really good At public appearances and panels Comedy Wallace was talking about the fake leaves They used for this movie And how after every take they'd go put them back in the trash bags Because they didn't have money to buy more of those and He said they were like gold And PJ says they were expensive You idiot She's on it She's paying attention. She, uh, and Brian Andrews, he kind of came in at the last minute. And PJ sets him up for a question about how he got to part. And he's like, I auditioned once. And she is totally leading him. And I wrote down, she should run panels. Cause she's really good at this. And then I've been told by, I think, two of my guests, and also by Eric Preston, that Brian will rant and ramble about halloween and i loved it because then he starts talking because uh little sandon mentioned going to see the movie and having to leave two-thirds of the way through because his sister was scared and he didn't see it until later on on tv brian took a friend to the premiere and the next day his mother called his mother because he thought he saw a hand out the window and then brian gets into rambling about the movie just tangent nothing to do with his question about its classical story structure how it has an overture and a prologue and he calls it classic Aristotle. Told simply, less is more. I, I was just trying to keep up. He was fun. He said now movies are bad. Jackson Pollock. Just too much splash. He likes it simple. And I put next to this little smiley face that I need an in interview with Brian. Um, we're past this scene, so I won't get to talk about it. But PJ Soul's a lot of her ad libbing and adding lines in the conversation on the street was because she thought she had to fill in the gaps because of the pantaglide was making the shots so long. She was impressed by the pantaglide, but she thought it meant they had to fill in the space. And she didn't smoke. Yeah, I'll save some of this for in the show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Nick Castle is asked about his first shot as the shape, and he suggests that it was an evening shot of him crossing the street. Brian jumps in to say no. His first shot would be during the first sh- scene of the movie, which is Brian and Lori crossing the street walking by the Myers house. So Nick's first shot would be Nick's, you know, silhouette in the doorway. And then outside the house, you know, it would be somewhere in there. And then they went to the school with Mickey and all that. and Brian knows it. He's younger than all of them. So I, I trust his memory. Plus, in one of the commentaries, they did say that shoot was on the first day of shooting. So Brian's probably right. And Nick Castle... While he has great presence and energy, he seems to not have that great a memory. <laughs> Tommy me Wallace on the hand yeah, has a great memory. He was sitting behind people and he would stand up and get the mic and jump in and tell us that Nick's dad was a choreographer slash dancer. And so Nick has a, what do you say, a smooth groove walk. Yeah, John Graham brought up the uh, harness again with the two-minute limit because someone asked him what he thought looking at Michael as he did the head tilt. And we found out that Tommy Wallace is the one who suggested the head- t- I'll get this in a later minute. Tommy suggested it, Nick was just taking the direction from John, Carpenter, and then the other John was not really paying attention because he was waiting for them to say cut, cause he was told that in two minutes his pelvis was going to start being crushed. Nick was just following directions, said, you're part of the scene, but you're puppeteered by the director. And that's when John asked him about the knife length. And Nick's refrigerator question. He says, my Nick, my refrigerator question in the movie was, did they have driver's education in the sanitarium? <laughs> we'll get into the rest of this later minutes when it comes up. Someone asked about scenes on the cutting room floor. Tommy the Wallace explained, it's a low-budget movie. There were no superfluous scenes. There was only one reshoot, Glory's Bedroom. We've talked about that. And the low-budget meant they were adding scenes to try to fill out time. Nick's breathing, or... Michael's breathing was post-production. Uh, Tommy Wallace credits the sound guy, Bill Stevenson. And that means that way back there was a goof in what was it was at minute 14, right outside of Myers' house. The reason it doesn't match is that it wasn't recorded on location. Final note from the panel. Someone asked about the knife that Michael uses, the brand, the length. They don't know. But Tommy Wallace says, Randy Moore was in charge of the knife. And says, God, we didn't keep track of that stuff. Yeah, they were making... Some of them, it was their first real film, or close to first, and they were all just on a shoestring budget, having fun. when Yavalan suggested that some of them were sleeping on the set. I know they worked out of Winnebago, so that makes sense. And then was the fun thing. Panel ended, and I went and talked to Brian Andrews, and I told him, Eric Preston says you love to ramble and rant and talk about Halloween and anything. And he's like, oh, he told you that? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and I'm wearing the shirt that says I have a podcast. I'm like, yeah, I told him about my show. He said, you should get Brian Andrews. He's like, yeah, that makes sense he asked if i had a card i gave him a card and then i asked him i'm like there's a question i can ask you right now if you have a simple answer and i'm like your astronaut costume and he he tells me it's a space 1999 costume you're gonna find out in a few moments when i get back to the recording for minute 41 it's not a space 1999 costume impolite little me i say no the belt's space 99 and the costume isn't he's like well it's like a plain jumpsuit i think they just put it together and you'll find out a moment what i think it is and then maybe he'll listen to it and maybe i'll ask him about it later if i get the chance to talk to him on the show anyway it was fun and it went long that last panel was ended a half hour late and i'm gonna back to the minute minute 41 enough about halloween 40 and now on with the show Minute 41, we get about one second of Doyle House exterior, 1530 Orange Grove Avenue, Hollywood. Then we are inside. Lori, sitting side-saddle on the close end of the couch, Tommy sitting on the far end, and it's time to talk about the elephant in this room. My white whale for this movie. I've hinted at it several times when talking with guests, but it's time. With Groundhog Day, it was the nurse's name because she had a name tag and I couldn't read it on the DVD copy of the MP4 I had downloaded and I couldn't even make out what it said on the Blu-ray. Enter digital copy through Amazon Prime and there's the name. A Broadbent RN. Oh, but we're talking about Halloween. In minute 17, I focused on all those costumes on the kids coming out of the elementary and basically I was just guessing what they were by how they looked. That was easy. Tommy's costume, on the other hand color me exhausted. <laughs> Not right now, because it was actually weeks ago that what I'm about to describe happened. But still, there's the easy stuff. Everyone on the internet who cares knows that Tommy is wearing a Space 1999 utility belt put out by Remco. His costume has three patches, none of which we ever see that clearly. On his left shoulder is the obvious one, the US flag, over his left breast is what I thought might be a Mars patch of some sort. It's ovular, there's a red planet, and a satellite slash spaceship over it. If you know NASA patches, and I spent way too long looking at NASA patches for the search, Tommy's patch looks a little like the Project Viking patch, reversed and without the lander nobody will ever notice that i thought the patch over his right breast would be useful like it might be a character name but when i finally managed a readable screen grab it simply says astronaut with a few stars around it so the googling began space 1999 costumes no match nasa costumes no match individual searches for every science fiction show from the 70s and a few from the 60s boy that escalated quickly nasa patches The closest I came, and we're talking multiple searches deep, having scrolled through the fall and Christmas 1977 catalogs for JCPenney, Sears, and Montgomery Award. The closest I could come after several hours and some spare time over a few days is homemade costumes, but none quite matched. So I tried to find the patches separately, to no avail. So this white whale had not yet been caught. So I find... It's not even in this minute that I have the notes about what it finally is, so this white whale has not yet been caught. Probably. The Simplicity brand pattern for an astronaut costume around this time is close, but the collar seems wrong. A mandarin collar. Tommy's shirt is open at the top with no visible buttons or zipper, and looks more like a sloppy spread collar. Maybe it's a homemade costume by Simplicity, but then I don't know where the patches come from. If you are listening to this and you have better information, find me, at Myers Minute on Twitter, and tell me about it, please. Otherwise, I might actually find myself searching again and again. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. Minute 41, second second two, Interior, Doyle House, night. The interiors for the Doyle House are 1533 Orange Grove Avenue, across the street from the exterior. Camera slowly tracks through the Doyle House, according to the script, at least into the living room. We do not see the front door here, so I will not comment on it not matching the exterior we saw in minute 36, or the different door we just saw for a second at the end of last minute and start of this minute, and we'll see again in minute 71, 79, and 80. So I will not comment on it just yet. From the script, it is a large home with a staircase that leads to the bedroom upstairs. Through a doorway, we see a very modern kitchen. There is a dining room, and living room with a big bay window that looks out onto the street. It doesn't quite match, but it's close to the reality. There's a panther statue on the table by the door. Lori sits with Tommy Doyle on the couch, reading him a story. Tommy has his Halloween costume on, and a big bag of candy on the floor. I don't know if I ever noticed the paper candy bag before, but I always assumed Tommy had been trick-or-treating earlier because of his costume. In the novelization, Lori hopes that Tommy would just want to watch a movie so she can study history. On the one hand, I can imagine Lori wanting to study, but on the other hand, film Lori seems like she would put the child first while babysitting. Lori reads, How now, cried Arthur. In the novelization, I get the impression that Curtis Richards thinks Tommy, at eight, is younger than he is. Tommy interrupts. What does it mean he cried? Why is he crying? Laurie explains, he's not crying, crying, Tommy. A cry also means a shout. An eight-year-old, whose supposed favorite is King Arthur, and has probably heard this very story before, would know that already. Laurie continues, let no one pass this way without a fight. That's so, said the knight, in a bold and haughty manner. Tommy, I don't like that story. Lori, I thought King Arthur was your favorite. Tommy, not anymore. Tommy pulls out a stack of comic books from underneath the couch. Second 16, as Lori puts down the King Arthur book, I get sidetracked while putting together my notes slash script because I want to know what book she has in her hand. IMDB will let you know that the comics are all really Howard the Duck comics, but nothing on the King Arthur book. Insert long pause. And it's King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, edited by Sidney Lanier, illustrated by Florian, part of the Illustrated Junior Library published by Grosset Dunlap, in 1950. Available at the time of writing these notes on Amazon. Used, obviously, for just $5.48. Should I be writing this down? This is how it goes. Pausing now, at time of writing, not while recording, to see the book cover, by the way. I noticed something on the pillow that would have been hidden by Tommy while he was sitting on the couch, which might confirm the simplicity pattern theory. The Simplicity Astronaut has a hood-style helmet that looks to be a separate piece. On the pillow is a hood-ish bit of white cloth, discarded casually, perhaps. Now, I have to leave this minute to check later one, see if that cloth is still there, because that is how it goes. Insert another long pause. Plus muttering. Imagine me talking to myself as I type into Google, blah blah blah, or as I click on minutes, you know, I hear a lot of mouse clicks. I try to edit those out, but imagine some here. You know, click, 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 click. It's still there in minute 52, but no easier to identify. It's there minutes 55 to 56, and definitely looks hood slash helmet-like. As Laurie puts down the book, second 16, we get a better glimpse of Laurie's bag. Two things worth noting. One, plastic handle segment actually says Laurie in gold lettering. Two, the knitting needles and yarn are definitely in her bag. Not that any of you who have seen the movie before would doubt that, but I noticed reading the novelization recently that when she grabs the needle to stab Michael in minute 81, it is specifically Mrs. Doyle's knitting, sitting there. Lori, why do you keep them under there? Tommy, Mom doesn't like me to have them. Lori glances through the stack of comic books. Lori, laser man, neutron man, I can understand why. Tarantula man. A quick side note on Tarantula Man, in the Halloween comic, 30 Years of Terror, one of the, it's a bunch of short comic stories, one of them is an issue of Tarantula Man. It's a black and white comic about a guy who is part spider, who apparently is a child molester and kidnapper, which I can understand you're not wanting your kid to read that comic. As I already mentioned from IMDb Trivia, none of the comic books in Tommy's collection are real. Copies of Howard the Duck comics stood in for the fictional titles. In a later minute I have a note where you can actually see that it's Howard the Duck. Tommy. Lori, what's the boogeyman? And I guess that's really the question for the film. Michael is the boogeyman. Loomis confirms it if we don't confirm it ourselves. But the question is, is the boogeyman some down to earth murderer, some psychopath? Or is the boogeyman something greater? It's a back and forth that's been going on for many minutes. I think every one of my guests has said something about it. The phone rings in the corner of the room. Lori sets the comics on the couch and goes to answer it. Second 36, Tommy's hood slash helmet comes into view again, and I figure on confirming more details about the simplicity pattern. 5299 is the number, by the way. I'll put a picture of it on Instagram, Michael Myers-Minute. And I find that it's available right now through a third party on Amazon for $18.95. So with shipping, I can know for sure if this pattern is Tommy's costume. But what if it isn't? What if I spent $25 and just proved that this costume was not Simplicity fifty-two ninety-nine? dollars Then I'm out $25 and I still have no answers. No, affirmative answers. Insert sigh of relief. Someone has it on Etsy for just $4.95. I don't have to be that obsessive to spend $4.95. But the descriptions on Etsy don't seem to say that any patches are included. So I still don't know where the patches come from. As far as I know... Brian Andrews' mother or father, no need to be sexist about it. Maybe even Brian himself is a gifted embroiderer, and those aren't even patches. Anyway, long story, not short, but long story coming to an end. I didn't buy the pattern off of Amazon or Etsy, but I believe they're both still available of the time of this recording. She picks up the receiver. Lori, Doyle residence. Annie, it's me. Lori, hi Annie, what are you doing? Annie, making popcorn. Second, 45. Interior Wallace kitchen. The script actually says Doyle kitchen. It's a got a typo. Like the Myers back in nineteen sixty-three, minute four had themselves two mixers, and I think I called them blenders way back then. On behalf of everyone here at Lemming Drop Studio and Michael Myers, minute, I apologize and offer my resignation. Fine, I will stay. Anyway, the Wallaces have two blenders. Some clothes hanging on a door near the refrigerator, recently dry cleaned, I suppose. The Wallaces have a washer and dryer in the shed-out back, as we will later see. There's a wicker hamper below the hanging clothes. Annie stands making popcorn, the phone at her ear. Annie. Having fun? Never mind, I'm sure you are. Second 50. The door to the left pushes open, and it only occurs to me now that we might have been supposed to be startled by this, like a casual jump scare, but I don't recall ever jumping at this one. It's just not sudden enough, and we angle on the dog too quickly. Annie. I have big, big news for you. From the script, Lester, a large, ferocious-looking German shepherd, trots happily into the kitchen, spies Annie, and walks over to her. Lester doesn't look ferocious at all, and while we can hear a growl, that dog looks too happy to be growling on set. There is an IMDb goof for this one. At around 41 minutes, when Annie is on the phone with Lori, the dog Lester comes into the kitchen. We hear him growl, yet by his face, he is clearly merely panting. He then begins to bark sharply, yet his tail is wagging, and he is clearly looking at the trainer, coaching him. Yeah, that one's pretty accurate. So many of these goofs are just wrong. This one's, yeah, right? The script gets weird here, though. Uh, it says he nudges her legs with his head. Lester barks four times. Annie says, oops, hold on a minute. Angle on Lester, barking at something beyond Annie three times. She turns and reaches for Lester uncertainly, according to the script. Annie, hi, Lester. Lester barks one more time. From the script, it says he growls at her menacingly. And the minute ends. That is all for Minute 41. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute, or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe, and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Till next time. See you later. Bye. Bye. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Cut. That's a wrap.